How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started and we open in prayer, I want to remind you, urgent prayer request went out today on Jim Burney, went out this afternoon, and uh, he's uh, not doing well. He's dehydrated. His I think his heart stopped. They had to use a defibrillator the, the other day. So he's up at Memorial uh, Memorial Herman up here. So uh, keep him, please keep him and and Narice in prayer. And the other night, I guess it was Sunday night, I was up there uh, visiting him, and he uh, he was really lucid and very clear. And, uh, and he said that um, he wanted he had hoped to come a couple of weeks ago. I, he's just amazing the, the, the stamina he's got. That, uh, but he wanted to wanted me to tell the congregation how much he appreciated everyone's prayer, everyone's concern, everyone's support. So we need to just continue to uh, pray for them and uh, uh, as they go through this time. We'll uh, begin with a few moments of silent prayer so everyone can make sure that they're in fellowship and ready to study the Word, and then I'll open in prayer. So let's bow our heads together and go to the Lord in prayer. Father, this time we especially remember Jim and Norris, and we pray for his doctors. We pray for his his health. We pray that you would uh, encourage both he and uh, Norris as they go through this difficult time. Strengthen them. We know that that he just continues to decline, and his days and his time and his uh, health are in your hands. And we just know that they have provided a tremendous testimony to those around them. And we pray that you would continue to. Uh, use them as a great testimony, and we know that your timing is perfect, and we just pray that they can they can relax and trust in your timing. Father, we pray for us as a congregation that we might continue to be focused upon your word, that in a day and a time when we live in a world that pushes us and presses us to conform to its uh, ungodly, pagan, perverted standards, we know that it is, it, it is easy. There are many believers who have fallen by the wayside. Uh, they have not... Uh, uh, remain steadfast in their spiritual growth, and they have become um, um, uh, <clears throat> become victims and become uh, tragedies in the spiritual warfare. And Father, we just pray that you would continue to uh, strengthen us and that we might continue to keep our focus upon your word and keep our priorities straight. We pray that in Christ's name. Amen. Unless you just never watch the news and you're living in a cave somewhere, I don't know that anyone could have escaped all of the uh, hubbub the last couple of days about the interview that appeared in the uh, GQ magazine with uh, Phil uh, Roberts, who is the uh, patriarch of the Duck Dynasty clan and the Duck Commander um, free enterprise industry. Now, I've read some interesting comments from people on Facebook, from believers, from some people who've been associated with this church, and the issue here isn't their understanding of the gospel, which might not, I don't, I don't really know, it might not be straight on. He is apparently an elder at a church of Christ, 
And since Church of Christ, if it's a denomination, uh, they believe in baptismal regeneration. In other words, you're not saved unless you're baptized. Uh, th- that's a problem with their gospel. But it's not an e- in things like this. It's the issue isn't uh, the accuracy of their doctrine. It's not that he's being a spokesperson for Christianity because he's not setting himself up as that. Uh, what happens is when a Christians become celebrities, the pagan press sets them up to be spokespeople and then targets them and seeks to assassinate them. It's a simple dynamic that we see where uh, the world, which is in the process of operation suppression, and they're suppressing the truth and unrighteousness. And the way that the dynamic works is, and we do we do this too, we, we rationalize in different areas of our life, uh, not to the degree that the unsaved, atheist, secular, perverted pagan does, but we do it in our own way, uh, and we have to watch out for that, that we have our little pet areas that we don't want the Lord to deal with or mess with either. But what happens is they, when you're suppressing the truth and unrighteousness, something has to fill that vacuum when you take the truth out of your soul. Something gets sucked into that vacuum, and it's a fantasy. And they create a fantasy world. They, uh, in today's environment, and we're going to be talking some about this in terms of uh, the, the passage we're in in Romans 12 too. In today's world, what, it, what gets sucked in is a utopic version. Uh, because the basic difference between the liberal left and the conservative right, as Thomas Sowell so <clears throat> accurately points out in his book, The Conflict Division, is that liberals believe human beings are basically good and conservatives don't. They believe that people are basically bad or they have a propensity to, ba- to be bad, that as uh, you know, dirt runs downhill, so to speak, uh, that's the direction that we go when when we get in a default position. Our sin nature takes over. But when if you're a liberal, if you if you start with man is basically good, then man is perfectible and society is perfectible, and so you build your view of social programs and economics and politics around a fantasy that man is perfectible and society is perfectible. Now, conservatives, whether you're a conservative Christian or whether you're just a traditional conservative, uh, conservatives believe that, that human beings are basically flawed and that if we're given too much power, it will corrupt, and absolute power corrupts absolutely, and that given the opportunity... Uh, human beings under a certain amount of pressure and stress will default to sin nature control and they will uh, go in the wrong direction. And so there need to be standards. There needs to be uh, absolutes that guard and protect uh, society and that we're never going to have a utopic society. That doesn't mean we don't strive for order and discipline and civilization, but the greatest levels of civilization that have been developed in the Western world, in Western Europe and the Americas, has been developed by uh, countries, nations, England and the United States specifically, that have had the greatest uh, impact of Christianity. They're not Christian nations in the sense that they have become uh, primarily dominated by Christianity or a theocracy, which is always the lie 
that the left wants to wants to use. And I've even read this with some so-called moderate uh, turn. I would call them turncoat conservatives. There's a book on American theocracy by Kevin Phillips. Now, in the certain areas, I can't tell whether he's telling the truth or not because those aren't in my areas of expertise in economics and so, some areas of politics. But he has a whole section on on church and state and on the religious right. And he is so distorted and perverted and dead wrong because I'm not, I've had the privilege of knowing many of the leaders in the so-called Christian right. <clears throat> I've had the privilege of knowing uh, people like Jerry Falwell and Tim LaHaye and a number of others that are castigated by him and his absolute total ignorance uh, of things. And uh, But this is what happens when you buy into uh, a su- Operation Suppression and you're suppressing truth, and you're building a fantasy world in which you're living. And as soon as somebody comes along and they prick your little utopian bubble, then you just throw an absolute tantrum because you can't live in any other kind of reality. And we have a lot of segments of American culture today that are living in these fantasy castles. And you have one group that's in the uh, militant, gay, lesbian, uh, transgender uh, community. You have others in certain racial communities on the liberal left and among Hispanics and in black communities and other minority communities. And <clears throat> you have those who are in the um, just the liberal socialist uh, agenda and, and the anti-gun crowd. And it's interesting how most of these people all sort of flock together. The old adage, birds of a feather flock together, is really what sets off uh, Thomas Sowell in his opening introduction in Conflict of Visions is he recognizes that on many different uh, apparently disconnected, disparate issues from uh, from birth control to gun control, uh, the same people seem to always line up on the same sides of, of, of the issue. And the liberal left has a, I'm not saying that people on the conservative side don't distort facts and don't misrepresent their case. Certainly they do. But the preponderance of lies on the left is just, uh, it's just unconscionable. And one of, and the media is complicit in all of this and they want to do everything they can to support the fantasy worlds, the, the utopian fantasy castles that are out there. One example of this from gun control is the fact that you never hear anybody on ABC, CBS, NBC, CNN, MSNBC, that's on one network, um, you never hear any of them talk about the fact that the recent shooter in Denver was a radical socialist and he was all in favor of gun control. And the vast majority of the shooters in these mass shootings have espoused socialist, leftist uh, political positions. And nearly every one of them have been on some kind of psychological, psychiatric medication. Either they're just coming off of it or they've been on it or they're currently on it, as is the case with uh, several of the most recent uh, recent shootings, and also a number of them have been involved in satanic and occultic worship. But we never hear that side of the story. And see, that's important because it helps us understand two important areas in terms of their outlook on life. And tonight, as we get into our passages in Romans 12.2, we're going to talk about worldview. And a number of these individuals have a view of man, a view of 
ultimate reality that is completely distorted and skewed. There, several of them are even Satan or devil, devil worshippers involved in the occult. But you never hear the media uh, talk about this kind of a thing because, because they all, by definition, because they own a gun, they have to be a radical right wing fascist. That just goes without saying. And that's not at all true, and um, and the lies just continue to go out there. But today we saw we've seen all the hubbub about uh, Doug Dynasty, and the fact is that that Phil Roberts, in reading actually reading the whole text of the interview, he doesn't say anything that's particularly pointed at individual. Uh, homosexuals. It's not a personal attack. He is simply stating his own opinion in relation to his own preference, and he backs it with the Bible. And the extreme reaction that we've seen out of the the, uh, homosexual community just indicates how extremely bigoted they are. In fact, there's one article I did read today written by a uh, a homosexual uh, uh, journalist and he made that exact point that the embarrassing part about this whole thing is it shows the knee-jerk reaction in the homosexual gay community that the, their only response to somebody who says something they disagree with is to shut them down completely and remove them from visibility completely. They don't believe in the First Amendment whatsoever. They don't believe in the Second Amendment. They don't believe in the Constitution unless it happens to f- be something they can utilize to promote their utopian fantasy world. And so this is part of the whole uh, culture war that we are engaged in today. And as Christians, trust me, we're on the losing side. This isn't going to be better, getting better. I'm not the bearer of good news other than the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I think that as bad as we've seen it go in the last 10 to 20 years, we're going to see it go even and, and, and we're going to see it <clears throat> decline in a, at an even more rapid pace over the next 10 to 20 years, and what we have to do is be prepared spiritually for it because I think that some of us may even see the inside of a jail because of our stand for Christianity, and we have to be prepared for it. Open your Bibles to Romans chapter 12. Romans 12.2, as I pointed out last time, really gives us in one verse a summary of your mission and my mission in terms of our own spiritual life. Uh, The verse begins, And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect uh, will of God. The context comes out of verse 1. It's really one sentence in the Greek, properly punctuated, there would be a semicolon at the end of verse 1, not a complete halt. And Paul comes out to urge, to challenge, uh, to put before uh, his audience a high standard that they should achieve. He says, I urge you, beseech is just an old English word that we should get rid of. It should be, I urge you or I challenge you, therefore, brethren, on the basis of or through the mercies of God, that is what he's covered so far in Romans, that you present your bodies, that is the totality of your person, as a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. The way you do that is verse 2. Verse 2 explains how we present our bodies as a living sacrifice. It's by not being conformed to the world, 
but being transformed by the renovation of our mind. Now, I pointed out last time that two of the important words here for understanding this passage are, first of all, uh, the first word conformed, suschematizo, in the Greek is a present imperative. It's a passive imperative because it's emphasizing an external action upon us. And we see a great illustration of this in this whole uh, Phil Roberts, Roberts hubbub with the Duck Dynasty thing today is because you see how the, the, the gay lesbian community is trying to intimidate and, and threaten the Jewish, I mean not Jewish, the Judeo-Christian community, anyone who believes in that homosexuality is wrong. By the way, um, in the Orthodox Jewish community, they, like many evangelicals, recognize that homosexuality is a choice, and it never gets any press coverage, but there are quite a few uh, treatment centers that in America, and there was one uh, Stephen Bennett's ministry that I was a little bit familiar with up in Connecticut, that and he's a former practicing homosexual, that have had tremendous a tremendous impact on those who want to leave the homosexual uh, lifestyle, showing by their actions and by the results of their ministries in both a Jewish, Orthodox Jewish environment as well as a Christian environment that homosexuality is a choice. It's not genetic. There may be, like we all have, certain genetic uh, predispositions towards certain sins, but that doesn't give us a justification for committing those sins. We can't say, well, you know, it's not my fault. I just inherited that trend. No, we don't have to act upon those uh, trends or those weaknesses. But that's what the gay community is doing, the sad community. I had a professor in seminary always called them sads because they're not really happy. They're really miserable. And um, I know when this goes out on the Internet, I'm going to get all kinds of uh, reaction, but I don't care. I went through a lengthy study on homosexuality in the Genesis series, and you can go back and review that. Homosexuality, as, as Phil Roberts pointed out, and what he, he may not have done the best job of pointing it out, but he was trying to show by his quote of 1 Corinthians chapter 6 verses 9 through 12 that homosexuality is a sin just like adultery or any other form of sexual immorality. He wasn't comparing it to bestiality. He was listing different categories of sins and including within those, those verses, uh, drunkenness. And he is a recovering alcoholic, so he would include himself as a uh, former practitioner in those lists of sins. But, of course, all that's overlooked by the arrogance and the hostility of the truth suppressors in the homosexual community. But it's not just them. It's the anti-gun crowd. It's it's uh, all these other people. I just wish people would legitimize my sins, you know, gluttony for ice cream, things like that. Let's... You know, let's make those things just fine and okay. So uh, we won't do that. So we can't have fat people for ice cream, and it's not going to go anywhere. Um, so there's this pressure, though, from the truth suppressors to legitimize their truth suppression and to le- legitimize their fantasy world 
And so that's what this word conformed means. The, the world here is, as I pointed out last time, is the word ion, not the word cosmos. Cosmos, it, it focuses on sort of the world itself, the, the earth itself, and the inhabitants of the earth, whereas ion has a temporal rather than a spatial nuance, and it emphasizes the spirit or thinking of the age or the culture of the age. So we're not to be pressured into the mold of the world around us, the zeitgeist. We have to quit thinking like the pagans around us. We're going to have an overhaul, as I pointed out last time at the end. Uh, unfortunately, a lot of Christians are like somebody who lives in a rundown house, uh, needs a new paint job, needs a, a little work on the floors, uh, needs some new carpeting, need to bring oops cleaners in. You know, if you ever listen to that, hear that commercial on the radio, you know, oops, steam, whatever it is. Anyway, they need a little bit of work done on the house. But what the Holy Spirit does is he show up, shows up with a bulldozer and wants to take out everything, including the foundation, which is human viewpoint, and start over. And most Christians say, no, 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 I really am not that serious. I really don't want everything torn down, especially the foundation. I just want to have a veneer of Christianity. I, I want to get enough of Christianity to get enough stability in my life to where I can manage to make things work and still take care of all my little pet sins and not totally give up all of my uh, fantasies related to my own truth suppression. So uh, I own here, we're, we're not to be conformed to the world, don't think like the world, but we're to be transformed. That's the word on the right in the orange sort of box, uh, metamorpho, we are to be transformed internally. It's not just to be pressured into the mold of the world. One of the articles that I read today pointed out that the vast number of Americans agree with the statements that, that Phil Roberts was making. Vast majority of Americans. That's a traditional view that Americans and those in Western civilization have had uh, for hundreds and hundreds of years. But now nobody wants to really speak up like that because we're going to be labeled uh, as, as somebody who's uh, spouting hate and we're going to be called bigoted and all of these other things. And, and rather, than, rather than put up with all of that opposition, we just keep our mouths shut. And that's what happens uh, <clears throat> is that, that we just go along and we don't say anything. So... We're letting the world pressure us into its mold. But the mandate for the believer is to be transformed by the renewing of the mind, anakinosis, which means a complete transformative overhaul from the inside out. If we just change the outside, that's what the Pharisees did. Jesus called them whitewashed sepulchers. It was a gravestone. And uh, as they built a sepulcher over a, 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 like a concrete stone box over the grave, they painted it white. But what's in, it looked good on the outside, but on the inside were dead men's bones. It was just a camouflage, just a veneer. Well, as Christians, we want to be transformed uh, completely from the inside out, and that means an overhaul of the mind, not the emotions. But a lot of Christians just don't want to think. In fact, in over the last... 50 years since the end of World War II, we've created church after church after church that majors in emotional appeals. 
And part of this is seen in the way that the popularity of the uh, or the commercialization and entertainment aspect of of the megachurch. They're built on using uh, the the all of the uh, advertising methodologies that have come out of the advertising world, and this is how they they build themselves. And this is how they get so many people there. And then they water down the message. So if you don't say anything that offends anybody, then more people will come. In fact, we have one of the largest, if not the largest, megachurch in the country right here in Houston, Texas. And I know any number of unbelievers, some of my closest Jewish friends, just love listening to him because he doesn't say anything that possibly offends them. Remember, the Scripture says the cross is offensive, it's a stumbling block to the Jew. Well, he never says anything that that causes them any kind of a problem. Now, if I were a Christian pastor and I read my Bible and with the uh, blinders off, I would recognize that I'd be downright embarrassed that if unbelievers could listen to me teach and not be offended by the cross, then I was obviously not doing what God wanted me to do. Uh, so there has to be this this overhaul of the mind, not just an appeal to emotions, not just make people feel good, not just motivate them, but overhaul the mind. But we don't, people don't want to think. They don't want to learn how to think. And that's why churches that focus on teaching aren't exactly overcrowded. And what's happening is we're seeing, seeing a trend, I've seen it for the last 30 years, is that the more you teach, the less people come. Jesus saw the same thing. John chapter 6, the more he made clear what was required of a disciple, the faster the disciples left him. Uh, he would have five or six, 7,000 people, and by the end of his message, there would be the 12. That's it, because nobody really wanted to deal with what he was saying. But we have to renew our mind, completely change how we think. And that's the battle. It's the battle of the mind. That's what spiritual warfare is all about. I don't know if you've realized this. I'll put another plug in. Uh, the book that Tommy Ice and I wrote... 23 years ago, and the Lord is used in tremendous ways, called What the Bible Teaches About Spiritual Warfare. We've had it reprinted, and it is available, and we don't, because this is a non-commercial publication now. In the past, it's always been published uh, through uh, your, your standard publishing houses, so there was a, they put a charge on it, and so that's the way it operated, but this has been taken care of, and so these are available under our normal grace policy, just like uh, all of the other material that, that Dean Bible Ministries puts out. So that is now, once again, uh, in print and available. You can also get it in Logos format, and we're, uh, because of the nature of that is commercial, uh, that's going to have a small cost on it, and it's all, we're also preparing it to make it available. Of course, it'll also have a cost on it. Uh, to make it available in Kindle. Hopefully in another six months you'll be able to uh, purchase it in a Kindle format for those of you who want to view it on your uh, Kindle reader. Okay, so we got to renovate our mind. So it's a battle for the mind, and that's what spiritual warfare is. The spiritual warfare is not going out and engaging in 
uh, a pugilistic contest with demons and throwing demons down on the stage and all the other uh, theatrics and dramatics that come across from the false teachers. Uh, if you actually study what the Bible teaches about demons and demonic activities, as we've outlined in the book, you'll realize that these people are just filled with a lot of heresy and a lot of emotionalism that has nothing to do with what Jesus taught or the Bible. But we do have a battle, a spiritual warfare, and spiritual warfare takes place between your ears. It takes place in your mind. Uh, as the Apostle Paul says in, in 2 Corinthians, we are engaged in tearing down fortresses. These fortresses, these fortifications are those fantasy worlds, those, those fantasy castles that we develop within our minds as a result of our suppression techniques. We see a glimpse of this in James chapter 3, verses 13 through 15. James says, Who among you is wise and understanding? So that's one category. Those who are wise and understanding relate to believers who are uh, skillfully applying the word of God. And those who are wise and understanding should show by good behavior their deeds in the gentleness of wisdom. But there's a contrast. So what James is saying is that external behavior can reveal the internal mindset of an individual. So in contrast, if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart, see, I can't see your heart, uh, only God knows your heart other than you. If you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart, in other words, if your uh, mentality is loaded up with a lot of mental attitude sins. These are just two of them, but you can think about anger, resentment, uh, revenge motivation, hostility. All of these are part of a uh, uh, pagan mindset. If you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart, do not be arrogant and lie against the truth. Lying against the truth is another form of truth suppression. This is James writing. Paul talked about suppressing the truth. James is talking about lying against the truth. Same thing. And he says this wisdom, um, uh, that this is supplied in the English text, but the Greek makes it clear that uh, the wisdom here is referring to the human viewpoint wisdom that's, that's described in verse 14. Verse 13 is divine viewpoint wisdom. Verse 14 is human viewpoint wisdom. And then his comment in verse 15 is that this was, that is the human viewpoint wisdom is verse 14 is not that which comes down from above. It doesn't have its source in God, but it is, he uses three words to describe it. It's earthly, it's natural, and it's demonic. So what we see is that the scripture describes two basic uh, contrasted worldviews. The one is satanic or demonic. It says it right there in the, in the passage that if you're operating on self-centeredness, on mental attitude sins as your motivation, that's demonic. That's demon influence. That's the same kind of thinking that characterized Satan in his rebellion against God. So uh, as I put this in the chart, satanic or demonic thinking is human viewpoint. Human beings are simply reflecting the thinking of Satan. This is what happened in the Garden of Eden. Satan took on the form of a serpent, and he came to uh, Eve, and he said, Has God really said this? That's not so true that you can't uh, 
uh, take that fruit. You won't really die. God just doesn't want you to be like him. So he presents his arrogant hostility to God, uh, enticement to Eve, and she fell for it. So her thinking followed Satan's thinking. So when we're thinking on the basis of our sin nature, we're just thinking like our father, Satan. That's exactly what Jesus con, uh, uh, condemned the Pharisees for when he said that they were uh, of their father, the devil, that, that they were following his kind of thinking. In contrast to that, we have divine thinking, what I'll usually refer to as divine viewpoint thinking or biblical viewpoint thinking. The Word of God, all 66 books from Genesis to Revelation, uh, expresses one consistent unified view of reality. There's no contradiction between the uh, different authors of Scripture. There's over 40 different authors of Scripture, and they come from a wide variety of backgrounds. You have those who are commercial, commercial fishermen, like Peter and Andrew and James and John. You have those who were trained in the highest um, in the highest institutions of education in their respective cultures, as they were uh, uh, picked to serve in high places. Uh, in the administration and bureaucracy of those countries, men like Daniel, men like Moses, um, men like Nehemiah, different cultures. Moses was in Egypt, Daniel was in uh, Babylon and Persia, and Nehemiah later in uh, in Persia. And they thought differently, but they had, in, in terms of the human culture in which they grew up, but because of their devotion to the Word of God, they had a unified view. Paul was uh, trained and reared in the, uh, in the rabbinical system of Pharisaism. And then you had others who were farmers. David was raised in a family where he was a shepherd. You had Amos, who was a fig picker. You had others who had various different roles and jobs. Uh, jo- uh, Joshua was basically an assistant to Moses, and he's usually referred to as a military commander because he commanded the armies of Israel against the Canaanites. So you had a wide variety of, of men coming from different backgrounds. Matthew was a, a sellout tax collector, a sellout to the Romans, a lot of other different backgrounds, but even though they came from all these different backgrounds, they all had a unified view in what they wrote because the second author, the one who's working in and through them, was God the Holy Spirit. So our job when we're saved is to take all the garbage in our soul, which is everything that's there just about, even if there's right thinking, it's in a wrong framework. So we have to let God the Holy Spirit overhaul that, and that only comes about through the study of God's Word. So we have to understand a little bit about how we got the garbage in our soul and how that is set up because we're all influenced. We've all been pressured to conform to the zeitgeist of our generation. I mean, you, you can see the examples of this. It's so interesting when you see a generational change. You can look out there and you can see all these kids that were born around 19, from 1995 to early 2000s, and you look at them. They all seem to think alike. There are you, you can draw up these these uh, uh, charts outlining the way in which that generation thinks, and they don't think like the previous generation. And that that generation uh, doesn't think like the baby boom generation. The baby boom generation doesn't think like their parents' generation. 
And with the influence of the media, television, film, things like that, what we see is that that the, the generational conformity is even greater today than it's ever been before in history. And <clears throat> there are many parents who try to uh, protect their children. And I think that's that's good. If you can do a good job, it's it's more important today than ever before. And to try to remove them from from these influences, and uh, they they limit the television. If if not, just take a television out completely, and not even have that come into the house. Recently, I read um, an interesting sort of a parable about the fact that that um, a family. Uh, grew up, and there was always a stranger that came into the house, and that stranger could come in any time uh, that someone wanted the stranger in the house, and he could uh, he he could promote all kinds of values and uh, beliefs that nobody in the family uh, agreed with. And of course, it was a parable about the television, and that that people just allow this stranger into their family, and all kinds of programs come on, all kinds of music comes on, that influences everyone in the family uh, against the values of the family. And that was that was very interesting. But we have to think about how we, each one of us, have been pressured by the world system around us to think that way. And we all have, and until you were saved, some of you were saved when you were five or six, others of you were saved when you were teens or maybe in your 20s. But many of us, even if we were saved when we were five or six, we didn't really start getting serious with the Word until we were older. Now, our parents drilled some things into us which were which were helpful, but it, it really didn't do everything it could have done to uh, circumvent the influence of the world system. And then we had this little traitor inside of us called our sin nature that had this affinity for everything that the, that the world system around us wa- was promoting. And it, the world system is so slick. Dev- the devil's thinking is so adapted to our sin nature so that it's constantly providing us with rationales to justify are living on the basis of our sin nature, and we don't even know it because that's the that that that's the subterfuge of the sin nature. It's this covert little enemy inside of us that that constantly is throwing out ideas of rebellion, and we think, oh, that's what a great idea. I'll just gobble that up. So we grow up, and by the time we're four, five, or six, we've developed a well ensconced pagan worldview. So we're just going to think about this as a mix master, and we're or a blender, and this is the worldview mix master, and we need to understand a little bit about what goes into a worldview mix master. This is uh, what makes up the zeitgeist or the spirit of the age, the thinking of the age. There are basically four areas of assumptions. The first area of assumption is ultimate reality. What is a person's ultimate view of ultimate reality. What do they think is out there? The second thing is, what do they think about the human race? And, of course, this brings in the whole issue of origins. Are we just a product of chance where, you know, there was an electrical charge that uh, that accidentally uh sparked and brought some form of life into a protoplasmic blob and that eventually that uh, developed into, uh, you know, a Harvard professor. Uh, so we have uh, the human race as a pure accident. 
And then we have the issue of knowledge. How do we know anything? Uh, is there a soul? Is there? And this gets into issues like uh, the, the existence of the soul as an immaterial part of man. And within evolutionary theory, everything is determined by the chemical uh, components of, of the mind and the body. So everything is material. Knowledge is material. And so you have all these different views of how we come to know anything. And above, uh, beyond just knowing something, how do we know it's true? How do we know something is true? And then this gets to the issue of ethics and what is right and what is wrong. And this is usually where we start the, the conversation and we get in this huge battle like we see right now over this whole Duck Dynasty thing. I can't believe that God orchestrated that just to fit with this message. It's a great illustration. Everybody's arguing about an ethical issue related to sexuality, to homosexuality. And that's what they spend their time talking about. But that's only the, the tip of the iceberg that's above the surface. Underneath the water, the, the next thing down that nobody's talking about is how do you know whether homosexuality is true, valid as a, as an alternative lifestyle or not? How do you know it's genetic, uh, versus, uh, uh, volitional? How do you know if it's, uh, if it's environment? or if it's uh, personal responsibility and personal choice. How do you know the, 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 how do you come to know that the things that you're espousing about homosexuality are true? Well, some people say, well, that's just the way I am. So you're basing that on your experience. Other people base it on, on their view of determination. If everything's uh, physical, everything's material, then this is just mechanistically determined. That's just the way uh, the genetic dice fell, and that's the way you are. So that takes us back to a, a, a prior issue. You notice we're going from the bottom up now, uh, and that is the human race. What do you think about human beings? Are they individually responsible, accountable, or are they just the products of time plus chance and mechanistically determined by their by their DNA and various chemical factors and not responsible for their choices? What makes human beings distinct, or are they distinct? Are we just the latest uh, accident in the, the chain of being? And then that takes us back to the ultimate reality are we just the product of time plus chance, or is there an ultimate reality where we created with a purpose? It's Christianity and, and uh, Judaism teaches that the human race was created in the image and likeness of God, and as such we are unique and distinct image bearers of God, distinct from every other category of living being. So these are the issues that go into that worldview mix master, and we take our conclusions in each of those areas, and if you know anything about philosophy, those are the basic four categories of philosophy. Ultimate reality is metaphysics, uh, human race is anthropology, knowledge is epistemology, and then we have ethics. So all of this goes into this worldview mix master, and then what comes out of that are our views on origins. Our views on origins, and the major challenge today is between uh, evolution and creation. And if you have questions about that, we had a creationist conference, the Chafer Conference, back about five years ago, and we had some great speakers, John Whitcomb, who is in his 80s, I think he's still doing well, 
still has all of his wits about him and was a great teacher in the morning. And our evening speaker was Steve, Dr. Steve Austin, who is a geologist at the time. He still worked for the Institute for Creation Research. Since then, he's gone out on his own. Uh, he's now living in three places. He lives out in Pittsburgh, in Southern California, and he's an adjunct professor uh, of uh, geology at Cedarville University uh, in Ohio. And uh, I talked with him yesterday. We've been talking back and forth. And, yes, we have finally settled on a date. The announcement should be up on the uh, Dean Bible website. But in May of 2015, so you can start saving your shekels now, we are going to go on his last trip through the Grand Canyon, seven-day trip, a geology trip, uh, creationist geology trip through the Grand Canyon, a great adventure uh, it'll run about uh, 3,000 or so apiece, fly to, fly to Las Vegas, then we get helicoptered out to the Grand Canyon, put in a couple of boats, and these boats are registered as restaurants in the state of Arizona, so that's the quality of food. And then we spend seven days, uh, seven days on the river, and we will go, um, James, I think in those seven days we go as far as your dad did in 18 days. Do the whole thing, a lot of day hikes, a lot of geology, equivalent to a one semester of geology in an undergraduate course. So it's no, this is not Israel. No, this is a Grand Canyon trip in May of 2015, not to be confused with the November 2014 trip to Israel. So you might go. Yeah, you can get there and you can ride your motorcycle. That's right. Out to Las Vegas, and then we get to fly in a helicopter to put in on the river. Then when we get to the end of the destination, you get to take a helicopter back to Las Vegas. So it'll be an interesting, uh, challenging trip. And I've known I've known of people 70, 75, almost 80 years of age who have gone on uh, on these trips. So don't let that uh, bother you too much, but you might start walking now to get ready for it. Uh, origins comes out of your worldview. Then religion. Religion comes out of your the worldview mix. And the world has produced all kinds of religions, uh, polytheistic religions, secular religions, atheistic religions. Everything's religious because everything has and comes out of a view of ultimate reality. And that means that everything is religious, including secular atheism. And even the Supreme Court of the United States in a decision in 1974 recognized that secular humanism was a religion. So despite all of their uh, disclaimers, your, your neighborhood, friendly neighborhood atheist or agnostic is religious. That's his religion. And he just needs to understand that if you make a statement that there is a God, and that's, and he considers that religious, then the negation of that is also religious. Or the, the statement that there might or might not be a God, agnosticism, also has to be religious. Anything related to that proposition that there is a God is religious. So you know, use that sometime when you're witnessing to somebody who's an atheist or agnostic and get them all twisted up on their own petard. They won't like that. Everything's religious, and out of your religion comes a view of man. Man is in either just a little god, or he's totally independent of the gods, or he's just a toy of the gods in some sort of deterministic framework. Your view of origins, then your view of religion, and then that affects your view of man 
and that affects your view of nature and of creation, as well as science and math and society and all the issues in society, marriage, family, oh yes, and politics, the only things that are really worth uh, that are really worth talking about. I had a, um, we, we got a, a, a one of those uh, ha- much hated uh, Xeroxed Christmas letters from a fa- old family friend of, of uh, my wife's uh, this last week. First time we'd gotten one of these, I immediately fell in love with the old guy who wrote it um, because he complained about all of the intrusion of the federal government over the last several years. I'd never uh, never read read one of these, but at the very end he said, now this, this Christmas letter has focused on religion and politics. We haven't bored you with our personal life, our health, or our children, which is how it should be. We've just talked about the things that matter. So I appreciated that. And then out of all of this comes our view of suffering and solutions to suffering. Why is there suffering in the world? This is why the Bible has included the book of Job. God revealed that as the very first book that was ever inspired and written by God. Job was written before Moses wrote the Pentateuch. And it is all about suffering because suffering is such a fundamental issue for every single human being. We go through all kinds of suffering and adversity, and we have to learn to deal with that. And for the unbeliever, for the agnostic or the atheist, uh, they, they have a real problem because in a closed environment where there's no God and no devil and no sin, suffering is a real problem for them. And uh, they have to admit that suffering, therefore, has to be normal for, for them in their system. For Christians, suffering is abnormal. It's the consequence of sin. It's not how God originally designed things. But for the uh, secular atheist, suffering has to be normal. Listen to what the, what the evolutionist says. The evolutionist says that, that, uh, that evolution is based on the principle of the survival of the fittest, that means it's based on the principle of the non-survival of the unfit. That means it's based on the on death. The mechanism to advance in evolution is the death of those who are unfit, the suffering and destruction of those who are unfit. And so for them, the only way to advance, the only way to improve is uh, on the backs of those who suffer and die and who are unfit. So suffering and death... Are, are good. That's the mechanism of advance in evolutionary thought. Uh, they don't want to think about it that way, but that's the way it is. So for them, suffering, they can't really say things are good or bad. Oh, that's just horrible that you're going through that. Well, how do you know? It, it, the universe, I always love the way they personalize the universe. The universe is doing that to them to advance the evolutionary cause. Well, the uni, un, are you ascribing consciousness to the universe? And purpose to the universe? Well, that sounds awfully close to a, uh, oh, we have a purpose-driven tr- uh, universe. That's a whole new theology, okay. Uh, teleology, that there is an intelligent design. We also have law. How, how do we view law? Uh, is law just a, something that people agree on, or does law have an ultimate reference point? 
Are there absolutes, or is law something that we can just make up and change as often as we wish? And who determines that? What's the authority there? If we don't have an external authority for law, a reference point like the Bible or revelation from a deity, then that means societies just make it up as they go along with no external reference point. So it's purely relative, and so you can change it whenever you want to. So the issue becomes power. We want to understand what's happening in the politics of this country. It's power politics, because if God is removed, the only thing that matters is power, because power is what gives you the right to determine what is right and what is wrong. And the reason Republicans don't do a good job with this is because many of them are still operating on a, on a biblical worldview, and they haven't awakened to the whole issue of, of uh, the, the problems in, in a secular worldview where the ultimate ideal is power so that you can change everything in order to validate your own trends of your sin nature. This also impacts art, music, theater, literature, uh, all of those areas within within the liberal arts. So this is the worldview mix master. Now, if you are uh, you grow up, let's say you spend 20 years growing up in the pagan worldview, then you have you uh, you look at the right side of this chart, and you have a whole worldview system that relates to origins, uh, relates to ethics and values, right and wrong, science, math, marriage, everything that comes out of a foundation that has rejected God that's built on a utopic framework that man is basically good. And you have all kinds of small, tiny assumptions in your thinking that came out of that, and you've held to those views for most of your life. And now all of a sudden you become a Christian. Those things don't automatically go away. You have to be educated in terms of biblical truth, and you have to eject all of the negative and all of the wrong ideas and replace them with biblical ideas, and you have to understand that that's your mission. And it shouldn't take you long. The Bible really, in in most of these areas, isn't that difficult to understand. What makes the Bible difficult for a lot of people to understand is that they don't want to understand it. They don't want it to be true because it's it's... It's inconvenient to their sin nature. I mean, that's the real inconvenient truth is that the Bible is true. And it also affects economics and business. So uh, every worldview every, every, that everybody has, has answers basic fundamental questions. First of all, and the most basic, is what's ultimate reality. Then you have a question, what is the nature of external reality? What's the nature of external reality? This was something that Descartes, Rene Descartes, who's a Jesuit priest and a, ge- and, and a mathematician and geometrist, struggled with. What's the nature of external reality? Is external reality real, or is it just a cosmic deception from God or the universe? I mean, do you really exist? Am I really in this building, or is this sort of a delusion that God's wrapped around me? How do I know that anything actually exists? And this is what drove Descartes to the conclusion that I think, therefore, I exist. And it's like the story about Descartes went into a bar, and he was just sitting there looking at his, at his drink, and, and the bartender came up and said, um, uh, Penny, for, uh, he said, what are you thinking about? He said, nothing, and poof, he was gone. He said, I think, therefore, I am. 
And that became his starting point to build a whole philosophy of rationalism. The trouble is with rationalism, when you start inside of your mind, you have to get out of it to the existence of external things. Making that jump is what's difficult, and so pure rationalism, whether it's the idealism of Platonism or the rationalism of Descartes, falls apart uh, on the problem of solipsism. Solipsism means that you never really get outside of your soul. You don't get to external realities. Uh, so the empiricists come along and say, okay, you're born with a blank slate, a tabula rasa, and you're out there in the world and you're just being bombarded by, uh, by all this sense data. And that's how you learn truth. That's how you come to knowledge. So you see how we're moving from ultimate reality to to knowledge. Um, you have the question, what is mankind? Is mankind just sort of an accident, or is there purpose? Is that purpose, is he under a determinative purpose, or does he have personal responsibility? Uh, what happens when a person dies? What happens when they physically died? Is that the end of existence, or do they go to another life? It's been so great in the Good News Club about two or three weeks ago, a little uh, a little boy came up to one of the teachers and said, wait a minute, do you mean that there's another life after this one? Nobody ever told me that before. That's incredible. You know, we've had uh, four or five kids trust the Lord at those good news clubs in the last uh, in the last three weeks. And we're going to have more. I think in my group, uh, I've got about 15 fifth graders. I think four of them, I'm pretty sure, are saved. And uh, and I don't know about some others. I know there are a few that need to be saved. But it's just a great opportunity. Some of them just need to be sanctified, and others need a little divine discipline. But that's another issue. What happens when a person dies? And if there is an afterlife, is it good? Is it bad? How do we get there? Um, how do we know anything? How do we know what's true? How do we know what's real? How can we know anything with certainty? And what is our basis then for evaluation? That's number six. How do we know right from wrong? You look at these attacks on poor old Phil Roberts, and you have people who are saying he's wrong. That's ultimately what they're saying. He's just dead wrong. How do they know that? Where are they coming up with their idea? Where's, where do they get the idea that he's wrong? They're, they're moral relativists. They've rejected God or any kind of absolutes. What gives them the right to make an absolute moral statement that he's wrong? How do they know they're not wrong? These are the kind of questions they need to ask. And then if you take the whole uh, cu- cumulative aspect of, of uh, humanity, you have to deal with the history of humanity. What is the meaning of history? Is there meaning to history? Or is it just some big cosmic accident? If it's a cosmic accident, then it's pretty depressing because there's no afterlife, there's no purpose, it's just an accident. And, and so the only way to, ha- this is where existentialist, existentialist nihilism went. If there's, if everything's an accident, then it really doesn't matter if there's no right or wrong. It really doesn't matter whether I kill you or kiss you. You can't distinguish one from the other because there's no basis for saying something's good and something's bad other than personal preference. So these are the basic questions that we answer in every worldview. Now, the really tricky thing, I love this chart that Charlie Clough developed, 
is how our human viewpoint coming out of our sin nature neutralizes any principle from the Word of God. Once you talk to somebody about the gospel, you put out a little nugget of truth there, and if they're in Operation Truth Suppression, just like an amoeba, they want to reinterpret and absorb uh, the doctrine within their own categories and immediately isolate it and neutralize it. I had a great example of this uh, some years ago when I was at Preston City Bible Church. Um, had some family members, I won't name which ones, uh, visit the church. And these family members, extended family members, uh, were not believers. And um, one of them, in fact, had been very much involved in a New Age metaphysical uh, type of uh, quasi-cult uh, and had been a teacher. So it just so happened, I hadn't been there long. I was teaching John 3, started off teaching the Gospel of John, so it wasn't very long after I first went there. The day they visited the church, I was teaching them about Jesus and Nicodemus on regeneration. And that what a great opportunity. to you got 45 minutes to really get the Gospel across. And afterwards, at lunch, I heard the statement, you know, I really haven't been involved in my, you know, New Age metaphysic religion in, in a while, but after listening to you this morning, I just wanted to go back to it. Great example. The unbeliever in neg- negative volition takes the truth that you tell them and they immediately, unconsciously almost, redefine it, reinterpret it, reshape it, and conform it to fit their worldview so that their little fantasy world isn't challenged by what you've said. And they just go right along, and you're just beating your head against the wall thinking, what happened? But that's what happens through the sin nature because the sin nature is set in rebellion against God. Well, I want to stop here, and next time we're going to come back and continue talking about this whole issue of understanding how we think, thought as pagans, because it's still there, lurking from our sin nature. And when we're out of fellowship, this is the garbage that surfaces in our soul. And we have to recognize there's internal and external pressure to conform to this to the spirit of the age. But the only solution is that we renovate our thinking through the Word of God. And this has to be a conscientious, determined approach on our part. It doesn't just happen because the default position of your sin nature is to slide into the slime of sin and depravity and just to to relish it. And the only way to, to uh, oppose that is to make a conscientious effort to walk by the Spirit on the basis of the light of God's Word. Father, thank you for this opportunity to study these things tonight. We pray that you'd help us to understand them to give us a bit of a mirror that we can use that reflects our own thinking, reflects our own attempts to reinterpret the truth of your word, reinterpret the Bible, to just uh, give aid and comfort to the enemy within us. And, Father, we need to uh, be involved in a radical spiritual surgery which excises uh, this carnality from our, our thinking and from our soul, and that can only happen Uh, through the Spirit of God and the Word of God. Father, challenge us with these things, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.